Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 10, The Republican Army of the North. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city, San Antonio. Tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. The Minchaca family was one of the oldest and most respected in San Antonio. They were direct descendants of Jose de Urrutia, that Spanish leather stocking who had gone native, risen to command the East Texas Indians against the Apaches, and later served as one of San Antonio's first Presidio commanders. Menchaca's great-uncle and father had also served as commanders, and the latter had risen to become the wealthiest man in the province in his day. As an established military family, the Menchacas were generally conservative, and not inclined toward radical ideologies. Yet like all San Antonians at the time, they acutely felt the neglect of the Spanish government, and like all military families, they shouldered more than their fair share of the burden of defending the province that the crown refused to. They largely sat out the Casas Revolt from the previous episode, but that wasn't good enough for the deposed Governor Manuel Sacedo, and upon his return to power, he executed the Patriarch of the Menchacas, José Félix Menchaca, for his sympathies with the Republicans. It was a foolish move on Sacedo's part. In one stroke, he not only horrified the citizens of San Antonio, who had in fact just put down the Casas Revolt, he radicalized a wealthy, prominent family with a lot of soldiers in it. The executed José Félix Menchaca's son, also named José, and his nephew, Miguel Menchaca, had followed the family tradition and joined the military, serving as officers in the Spanish army and postings throughout Texas. After José Félix's execution, the Menchaca cousins would spend the next year ginning up support from known San Antonio Republicans such as Juan Martín de Veramendi, José Antonio Navarro, and José Francisco Ruiz for a second homegrown San Antonio revolt. Even royalists like Erasmo Seguin and Ángel Navarro and old conservative Canary Islanders like the Arrochas and Delgados struggled to defend the actions of the returned Governor Salcedo and express sympathy to the Menchacas and treaties. Miguel Menchaca made contact with Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara, an associate of the now-dead father Miguel Hidalgo, who had resolved to continue his struggle. A former blacksmith, rancher, and merchant from near Reynosa, he had been dispatched by Hidalgo to gather aid for the rebellion from the United States. He eventually made his way to Washington, D.C., where he met with various high-level U.S. and foreign ministers who committed resources to help in his fight against the Spanish. Gutierrez returned to Natchitoches in April of 1812 in the company of a former U.S. Army lieutenant, Augustus McGee, who became his second command, and a Cuban revolutionary named José Álvarez de Toledo, whom he appointed his chief of staff. Together, they raised a force of 150 or so Tejanos, a few dozen Indian allies, and about 150 Anglo-American volunteers. Anglo-Americans had already begun to build up a mythology around Texas about this time, and accounts like Lieutenant Zebulon Pike's in the previous episode only fed their fantasies. Expeditions into the province to round up cattle and horses had returned with tales of unlimited resources there, and free for the taking. To Anglo-Americans, Texas was a vast underutilized resource, its development retarded by indifferent Spanish bureaucrats who seemed intent to let it lie idle in perpetuity, while ambitious men all around hungered for it. San Antonians at the time didn't disagree, and welcomed Anglo-American support. On August 8, 1812, José Menchaca guided Bernardo Gutiérrez and his army, which he dubbed the Republican Army of the North, across the Sabine River and down the Camino Real toward San Antonio. As they neared, men from throughout the province filled their ranks, including José Francisco Ruiz and many other San Antonians, and by the time they reached the Guadalupe River, the Republican Army had swollen to 800 men. Governor Salcedo found out what was happening, mustered what forces he could, and went out to fight them at the Guadalupe. But Gutiérrez didn't oblige. Instead, he turned south and struck Goliad, capturing it on November 7th. Governor Salcedo now saw that the Republican Army of the North controlled access to the sea and their own supply lines in East Texas, and threatened his own supply lines down into the interior. 
Embarrassed and realizing that he couldn't leave the Republican army in the field while it continued to attract recruits, Governor Salcedo marched on Goliad. He arrived on November 13th and laid siege to the town, which the Republican army had begun to fortify. Though never able to completely cut off supplies to the occupying Republicans, Salcedo's forces were slowly being augmented by regulars and militia from south of the Rio Grande, and at one point outnumbered the Republicans 1,500 to 800. But as fast as Salcedo's reinforcements came in, many of them went out. Many of Salcedo's 1,500 royalists were, in fact, conscripts without any particular animosity toward the Republicans. Many more actually harbored active sympathies with them. In fact, the primary source of reinforcements for Republicans during the Siege of Goliad were actually deserters from the besieging army. Governor Salcedo started to feel his army dissolving beneath him, and he knew he needed to bring things to a head. On February 10th, about three months after Salcedo had begun the siege, he attempted to assault Goliad and was turned back with surprising force. He tried again three days later and was resoundingly repulsed, and the Republicans now began to feel their strength. Realizing that he was, in fact, in the weaker position, on February 19th, Governor Salcedo ordered a withdrawal of royalist forces to San Antonio. The Republicans smelled blood. Still high on their victories from the previous week, and emboldened by the sight of their besiegers frantically packing up and retreating, they knew that the momentum had shifted. The Republican army followed Salcedo's royalist army, which was soon in full panicked flight. On March 29, 1813, just as the Republican army was about to maneuver around him and capture San Antonio, Governor Salcedo gave battle. Eight miles southeast of San Fernando Cathedral, just outside modern-day Loop 410 at W.W. White Road, Gutierrez's 800-man Republican Army of the North overwhelmed Governor Salcedo's 1,200-man Royalist force at the Battle of Rocio Crossing. The Republicans lost only six men killed and 26 men wounded, to some 330 killed and 60 captured for the Royalists. What was left of the Royalist Army limped back to the Rio Grande. Governor Salcedo and 12 of his officers survived the battle and were taken prisoner. They were sentenced to death and rapidly convened kangaroo courts, which San Antonians protested, many of them having known the governor and his associates in less radical times, and many surely fearful of inciting a cycle of retributions as well. After pleading by the San Antonians, Gutierrez agreed to commute the sentences to exile and ordered the prisoners marched to New Orleans for return to New Spain. On April 1st, 1813, a 60-man escort marched the former governor and his 12 officers out of town. For the second time in just a little over two years, Governor Salcedo found himself in chains, and he chafed at the indignity, almost as much as he chafed at the delight on the faces of the men guarding him. The escort was composed of men like José Francisco Ruiz, a known radical Republican, and led by Captain Antonio Delgado, a cousin of the Menchacas, whose father had also been executed by Governor Salcedo. When the escort led the officers to the precise spot where the Battle of Rocio Creek had just occurred the week before, Governor Salcedo probably grew suspicious. He didn't have long to ponder his situation, however. With a brutality that horrified even those who supported the deed, the escorting force leapt upon the governor and the other prisoners and killed them savagely with sabers, knives, and bayonets, after which they stripped the bodies naked and mutilated them in gruesome frontier fashion, leaving their corpses on the spot as a warning. With these auspicious beginnings, on April 6, 1813, San Antonio declared its independence from Spain. Fittingly, since San Antonio's city council was the only actual government in Texas, and because San Antonio's communities comprised probably 80% of the province's population, San Antonio's city center, San Fernando, was declared the capital of the new state, and a solid green banner was chosen as the republic's flag. A ruling junta was formed, composed of three arrochas and four delgados, all of good Canary Island stock, demonstrating the deep local roots of this revolt. Yet it wasn't just the elites that supported independence in 1813. Historian Raúl Ramos has dug deep into the roles of the Republican Army and cross-referenced them with local census records to reveal that one quarter of the Republicans lived in stone or wood houses and the other three quarters lived in jacales or hide-covered shacks, 
a proportion that corresponds almost exactly to the at-large home ownership patterns of the community. Although it's too much to claim ideological homogeneity across San Antonio's population, this data does suggest rather broad support for independence and some sort of ideological alignment across San Antonio's classes, which should come as no surprise for such a small and relatively egalitarian community. The first Declaration of Independence of Texas, published on April 6, 1813, is a wonderfully rich document, drawing from the Hispanic legal tradition, but also from Anglo-American precedents, like the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, with which San Antonians were broadly familiar thanks to their long trading relationships with the Anglos. The San Antonio Declaration, published in both Spanish and English, begins with language that evokes both Anglo-American founding documents. Nos el pueblo de la provincia de Texas. We the people of the province of Texas declare that the bands that have held us beneath the domination of European Spain are forever dissolved, that we are free and independent, that we have the right to establish our own government, and that hereafter legitimate authority is derived from the people. We should compare this document to the Constitution of Cadiz, promulgated in Spain the year before, and the Mexican Declaration of Independence, which would be issued seven months after San Antonio's. The Spanish and Mexican documents derive much more clearly from the continental legal tradition and are quick to claim power in the name of the assembly that makes the Declaration of Independence, not in the name of the people. The Constitution of Cadiz from 1812 in Spain, for example, claimed national sovereignty in the name of the Congress against the King. The Mexican Declaration of Independence similarly declares independence in the name of the, quote, Congress legitimately assembled, end quote, and then quickly asserts that Congress's unlimited power to establish laws. The people are never once mentioned, and neither are rights. It's a subtle but important distinction between the Anglo-American natural law tradition, which says that power can only arise from the people at large, and the continental tradition, which is more inclined to recognize power where it resides, and therefore to recognize fewer limitations on it. But if any North Americans reading the document were thinking that San Antonians were about to bring Texas into the North American fold, they were quickly disabused of that notion. The next line of the 1813 Declaration affirms that Texas is, quote, free of any obligation to any foreign power, end quote a characteristic assertion of San Antonio individualism and a direct shot at the Spanish King, the Spanish Congress, and at any land-hungry North Americans. It then puts another twist on a line from the American Declaration of Independence, that governments are instituted among men to secure their rights, not for the, quote, engrandecimiento of particular individuals. This was a reprimand of the corruption inherent in the Spanish colonial system, but also another warning shot to any foreign powers looking to get rich quick off of Texas's new independence. The San Antonians go on to submit their grievances to the, quote, opinion of the world, a line again that recalls the American Declaration of Independence's acknowledgement that, quote, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation, end quote. In the San Antonians' case, they claimed, they had been forbidden from freely trading in foreign and domestic markets by a mad, evil, and corrupt king. They had been consistently impoverished in order to enrich monopoly holders and favorites of the court. They've been subject to onerous taxes and stamped paper requirements, which unduly burdened isolated communities like San Antonio's. Their laws had been applied unevenly, corruptly, and so slowly as to offer them no relief whatsoever. They were prevented from holding higher offices in their own government, and they had been rewarded for their faithfulness to this king, whose rule they had reinstated on their own just two years before, by the maniacal and bloodthirsty vengeance of the very royal governor they had returned to power. The San Antonio Declaration of Independence is pragmatic, unassailable, and succinct. It ends, too, with an important declaration of alignment with their brethren in Mexico and an aspiration for Texas to lead a, quote, rebirth of the Mexican people, taking in our hands the reins of our government, end quote, a fitting horse-based metaphor from a people so derided by royal authorities for their love of the animal. Following the Declaration of Independence, Bernardo Gutierrez was named president, and two Anglo-Americans were swapped into the Revolutionary Junta, leaving five San Antonians. This group hastily set to work on a new constitution, which they published 11 days later on April 17, 1813. 
The Constitution of the Independent State of Texas was brief, only 18 articles. In the first article, we see Texas promoted from a province in the old Spanish Empire to an independent state, though once again we see an unequivocal declaration that Texas was to be part of a, quote, Mexican Republic, to which it remains inviolably joined, end quote. Of course, no Mexican Republic had actually been declared yet, but other like-minded Republicans were at work throughout Mexico to bring it about. The idea amongst these Mexican Republicans, who will morph into the Federalist Party in future years in Mexico, seems to have been a sort of confederation of states, somewhat like the United States' first Articles of Confederation. The second article in the San Antonio Constitution, in fine Hispanic tradition, establishes Catholicism as the state religion, albeit with the rather bland affirmation that, quote, our holy religion will remain unchanged in the way it is now established, end quote. Much softer language than that of the Constitution of Cadiz or the Mexican Constitution still to come, which would forbid the practice in open or in secret of any other religion. Then, before the San Antonio Constitution even turns to the structure of its government, in Articles 3 and 4, it boldly affirms the civil liberties of all Texans. Article 3 reads, quote, Private property and possessions will be inviolable and will never be taken for public use except in urgent cases of necessity, in which instances the proprietor will be duly compensated, end quote. Article 4 goes on to affirm that, quote, No man will be arrested for any crime without a formal accusation made in the proper form under oath being first presented. No man will be placed before the tribunal without first having been examined by the witnesses. Neither will any man be deprived of life without having been heard completely in court, end quote. Both of these clauses mirror similar clauses in the Constitution of Cadiz. Yet sandwiched between these two San Antonio articles is the line, quote, personal liberty will be held sacred, end quote, which is unlike anything found in the Cadiz document. This is Jeffersonian, a declaration of self-evident and inalienable rights that precede all governments, which governments are constituted to protect and which no government may infringe. By contrast, Articles 24 through 26 of the Constitution of Cadiz outline the very specific qualifications that a citizen must satisfy to have the right to rights. Indeed, Article 308 of the Cadiz document fairly well allows the Spanish Cortes to circumscribe any and all such rights, including due process, under extraordinary circumstances. Similarly, whereas the Constitution of Cadiz goes on to spend 40 to 60 articles explaining the methods for selecting judges, venues, and even details of civil procedure that you would never expect to see in an Anglo-American constitution, the San Antonio document of 1813 foregoes these as well. This stands in contrast again to the continental civil law tradition that San Antonians were well aware of, but were distancing themselves from at the same time. So only after these individual rights and civil liberties have been asserted and protected, the San Antonio Constitution moves on to define the structure of its government, which was to have three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial, in line with both the American and Cadiz documents. It as well contains a rather specific provision, whereby the New Republic agrees to honor the commitments made by General, now President Gutierrez, to his soldiers, namely $40 a month and about 4,000 acres per head upon victory, a rather unexciting constitutional principle, but a reminder of how important land was to the men fighting for the Republican cause. The funny thing for me in studying this first Texas Declaration of Independence and first Texas Constitution is how differently scholars from different traditions can see them. Two Spanish language sources I found describe them as slavishly Anglo-American. Several of the English language works I've read claim they were decidedly Hispanic. I mean, they're both. They employ the North American language of liberty within a Hispanic legal tradition to establish a government of checks and balances that frankly fits pretty well into either tradition at the time. But they also unequivocally declare the independence of Texas within a new Mexican society. They fit perfectly in the San Antonio that we've been studying, and are really a unique contribution to the political history of the continent, not only in the way that they synchronize two very different legal traditions, but also in how they lay the foundation for events that would come to a head 20 and 30 years later. While all of this was happening, however, retribution was marching up the Camino Real. Thank you for listening. 
please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by my lovely wife and in-house copy editor, Susanna. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friends, the McKay Brothers, for letting us use their song, Mi San Antonio, which you can find on iTunes. For this episode, I recommend you go to our website, brandonseal.com. There you can find links to these documents that I reference here, including the Constitution of Cadiz, the first Mexican Declaration of Independence, the first Texas Declaration of Independence, and the first Texas Constitution. Check them out for yourselves. Don't just take my word for it. They're short, occasionally dense, but interesting and necessary reads for understanding the period. 